Welcome to the Stacking Slabs podcast. Join Brett to get the latest sports cards investment advice, hear from industry experts that are deep in the trenches, and find out when to turn left when the rest of the market is going right. Get eBay ready, get PayPal ready. Let's be students of the game and stack those slabs. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs. I am so excited to share this conversation with all of you. I had so much fun talking with Chris Keller of Top Shelf Sports Cards and Top Shelf Breaks in the Chicagoland area. We are very similar. We both love sports cards, business, marketing, professional wrestling, music. Um, I think you're all going to really enjoy this conversation. Chris does a really nice job of talking about why he got started in cards, how he did it, and how he's been able to maintain and run his business. I personally think that, you know, the approach he has taken in order to really build an audience and build his customer base is really thoughtful and strategic and really aligns with what I've been talking a lot about in on Stacking Slabs. And that really at the core is the importance of building your brand, relationship building, and not thinking about things from a transactional perspective, but thinking about things from a long-term perspective. So hope you all enjoy it. Definitely um, would love to hear your thoughts after um, you consume this, but uh, enjoy. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Stacking Slabs. I am super excited for this conversation. Quick story to jump it off. So been talking a lot about getting back in the hobby, been talking a lot about consuming as much content as possible. And, you know, a couple months ago, I was on a walk listening to a podcast and it was a conversation um, on the Breaker Culture podcast. And it was with a local card shop owner and the conversation was super casual. I learned a lot about just what it's like to own a card store, what it's like to break cards. And um, that really got my juices flowing and wanted to learn a lot more about just the business side of being in the sport card market. So I'm excited. Today, we're joined by Chris Keller. Chris owns Top Shelf Sports Cards and Top Shelf Breaks. How are you, Chris? Hey, Brett. I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me here on Stacking Slabs. Yeah. And I'm super pumped to have this conversation. I think We've uh, had some messages back and forth. And before this call, I got a chance to see with my own eyes, your shop. And I guess the first most important thing I think we should uh, kick things off with is um, you've got some awesome wrestling memorabilia that I certainly was attracted to. So maybe hit the highlights on what, what are some of those pieces that when people walk into your store and are wrestling fans, what can they see? Yeah, you're greeted by the big uh, Ric Flair just about full size fat head sitting on the wall in the back with his belt, with the championship belt uh, beside it. And uh, I, I know you like the Hulk Hogan uh, autograph photo from WrestleMania three. Was it, was it number, was it three? It, it was three yeah. on against Andre, everyone who's uh, out there, who's a wrestling fan who wants to watch that one. Yeah, that's a good one. And it's signed. I slammed the giant. That's what he wrote. Uh, he inscribed that. And, uh, and one of the best pieces uh, that's still a work in progress is the uh, transcendent wrestling WWE case that it came in. And I, I was able to get it signed by Hulk Hogan at the national. 
And then I had Undertaker sign it at a local Chicago show here last year. So that's a really good piece of mine that I need to get finished. Yeah, that's uh, I that's one of those things when I saw, I just wanted to reach through the screen and grab and hold it. I know the, you know, Hogan's autograph, it's easier to get. He's got his own shop. He does signings. The Taker's autograph for a while was almost impossible, but he's done some spots here and there. You're going to have to pay for it. But to see that those two autographs together on one piece for any collector is uh, super appealing. Um, So that's definitely cool. And then just the other synergies here, I talk a lot about music. Maybe you can tell, uh, share with the audience your start and how you were involved in with music um, earlier in your career. Yeah, I was uh, growing up in the 80s, you know, back then, media wise, you had a few television networks and you had uh, MTV, of course, and radio, commercial radio. And I was just so enamored and attracted to commercial radio. I was that kid that was calling in the radio station, getting to know the DJs, going to all their live events and remotes that they had at the grocery store or the car dealership. And I just loved and consumed everything radio. And uh, one day it was uh, Thanksgiving food drive. And I gathered up some canned goods from the cabinets and stuff. And I took it down, dropped it off at the radio station. And they wouldn't let me in to drop the food off. Like I had this plan, right? I'm going to take this food down there. I'm going to get to see the studio. Well, I pushed the button and the guy wouldn't let me in. Long story short, he let me in the studio. And because you can probably see I was this young 16-year-old kid, so excited. And I knew right then and there, Brett, that that literally was what I wanted to do, you know, with my life, so to speak, in my, my future career. So I worked out a way to become an intern at the radio station and started as an intern at the local radio station in Harrisburg. And that grew into a almost 20-year uh, career in the music business, uh, both sides of it, meaning on-air DJ and also record and radio promotions. So working for independent record companies and working for ultimately ending with um, Epic Records and Sony Music, which is how I ended up here in Chicago. So it was, wow. uh, it was, it was quite the run. And it's, it's kind of ironic and, and crazy because I found myself at the boom of the modern rock era, at the boom of the pop explosion with Backstreet and Christina and Britney and all that. And, um, and now I find myself here in this sports card industry boom. Um, it's a little different than being on tour or, you know, the hustle and bustle of shows and concerts and events. But um, the industry is doing that kind of stuff now, though, you know, totally like putting together big events like that. So it's it's very similar. I'm very fortunate. I had a blast in the music industry and that carries over to my breaks as you were in a few nights. And I just love playing music and making it kind of basically it's me back in radio but opening cards as well. Yes. And we will definitely talk about your breaks and we're going to mostly talk about sports cards. I promise. Mm -hmm. But I have to ask the question before we jump off the DJ, I got to know what, what is throughout your years as a DJ, what is one song that got called in and requested a bunch that you loved playing? And what is one that just got called in and requested a bunch that you absolutely playing just to just to give the audience some perspective on what type of music you like okay so i i have to say that i do feel very rain manish when it comes to the modern rock era um from from those years so every time i hear those songs um you know like seven mary three and system of a down and pearl jam and incubus so we would answer you know we did we did take requests and that was those were the days man i don't think that's happening as much anymore today but the request line would blow up and I never had a problem playing Metallica and I never had a problem playing Rage Against the Machine on full blast. 
in the studio. So that was always a given. Um, and I'm probably going to take a lot of heat for this. And I know I'm going to take a lot of heat for it, but you're asking me, so I'm honest. I don't get you too, the band. <laughs> Neither do I. Yeah. It doesn't move the needle for me, so to speak. I understand how important they are for quote rock music and charity and everything that they do, but their music, when it came up on the playlist to play it, it went volume down and I could just watch the timer until the song was over. So yeah, yeah, I've never been a huge U2 fan. I guess if I had to pick, I'd say Sunday Bloody Sunday is a decent track, but back to what you excited you in a big regret I had before we all were in a world where we were kind of stuck at home is last summer Incubus came around to Indianapolis to do the 20 year, which is crazy to think about of make yourself. And I slept on it. And next thing I knew tickets were sold out. And then day of tickets had jumped like 200% and I couldn't get in and really regret that. But that is certainly a band I grew up with. And they age well still. I can go back and listen to all of the hits, go listen to all the B-sides. And I think that band is criminally underrated. And I got to just share a story. So I was in high school and the Incubus was playing and we were at uh, Deer Creek in Indianapolis and it started thundering, pouring, and they had everyone exit and everyone had left the lawn and everyone was stuck in the bathrooms And then all of a sudden you hear the opening licks for Riders on the Storm by the Doors. And the Incubus had covered the song. And that's what brought everyone, the masses, back into seeing them. And they just rocked it out. So ever since that moment, I've got nothing but love for uh, Incubus. What year (laughs) was that? Do you recall what year that was? Oh, man. It it had to have been, it it may be the um, whatever year Morning View came out. That year, like, uh, was it 2000 and between 2001 and 2003? Probably something like, something like that. Yes. Those, the, the that reason, time frame. The, the reason that I tell you that is because at that time from 2000 to 2003, late, I was working here in the Midwest for Epic Records. So Incubus was my band. So I was on the road with Incubus and Indianapolis was my market. So I, co- I covered Indy. So it's very possible that I was at that show. Um, that that you're talking about there. They were a great band. I loved working with Incubus. People ask me questions a lot about who are some of the people you love working with and who didn't. Incubus really was uh, one of the best, most fun bands that uh, were easygoing and respected me and respected the record company and did whatever we asked them to do. So we'll we'll talk about that stuff more off the air. I'll show you some stuff I have from them and I think you'd really appreciate it. That's awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, let's jump into cards. So yeah. yeah. Why don't you why don't why don't you share with the audience maybe your I got caught up to speed by reading an article that Beckett put out that covered you, but why don't you share just with the audience how Top Shelf started, what the inspiration was, and how long you've been in the game. Okay. Uh you know, we're coming up on six years, almost to the date, uh, six years ago in, you know, early summer, uh, I put something on Facebook. I was participating in break since about 2011. I was Googling or searching and I saw something on Twitter feed and I was, I was a customer and I loved it. And I would get excited for the nighttime to, to see the breaks, but I always felt like, man, I would do this. They should do that. This would be cool if they did that. And one day my buddy Nate came to me and said, Hey, what is that video on your Facebook? Some guy opening cards with his hand. 
I explained it to him and we started splitting breaks together with buying cases, 50-50, split the spots price. And then one day he literally said to me, I'll never forget it. Have you ever thought about doing this? And I said, well, yeah, kind of pretty much 24 <laughs> seven, like really. So that was the impetus I needed to like get it going. And so that was summer of 14. And uh, we just started out, believe it or not, we started opening up sports pet uh, figures from McFarland. We weren't even doing a whole lot of sports cards because it was tough to find customers back then, Brett. I mean, today, 2020, it's completely the other side of the spectrum as far as if you want to start doing breaks, the access you'll have, the viewers you'll have. Uh, back then, it didn't really exist as much other than what I call the, um, the Mount Rushmore guys that I was looking up to, the, ultim- the Ultimates and the Mojos and Rich and Sarah laying that groundwork and already succeeding. It was difficult to try to break through because it was kind of like the wild, wild west back then. If nobody knew who you were, they weren't too comfortable sending you money. Mm-hmm. You know? I started with zero followers. So nobody knew who I was sitting down here in my basement trying to sell spots. So my goal was when I started was to build relationships and to get recognized by my peers in the industry. It wasn't to let me just start ripping cases and boxes and how much money can I make? Uh, I knew it was going to take months and then, and then into years to develop that. And from there, we just kind of started running promotions around halftime of sporting events. I'd run promotions around all-star games and, and gather everybody up at halftimes um, or intermissions and big games. And that's how I started building the audience. Back so then. that, yeah. So the, what I think the, what, what I gravitated to and just connecting with you is just, I could tell immediately you were someone that was relationship driven. And I think you touched on that in another side, which from a, you know, business and marketing sense, you see the importance of, you know, building top shelf as a brand and thinking about it as a brand and make it, having it be a place where people come and not necessarily, you know, dump a lot of money in, which that would be nice, but a place people come and hang out and have fun. And you're trying to kind of build that community with the people that um, you're interacting with on a day-to-day basis or your customers. Is, is that how you see it? Exactly how I see it, uh, Brett. And that, that's easier said than done. I'm sure there's many people who start a business and, and say that's going to be their, uh, their mantra and what they want to do. But actually practicing it and doing it and making it so are, I believe, two different things. Because you have to be prepared to not make money probably for a long time. Like I said, it's probably different now. The reason it's different now is because everybody is on social media now and aware of it and aware what breaks are. So you could gather up your buddies. Hey, I need 12 of you. Let's, <laughs> let's break a case. There was none of that going on six, seven years ago. They're like, what do you want to do? So I had to just start little by little, build relationships with the distributors and show them that I'm serious and I'm professional, build them with uh, my customers one by one. I'm talking, I would sit on the air for six, seven hours a night in my basement and have maybe one or two people pop into my chat and not one of them bought something. But I had to do that every night for years. So one person at a time, I got to know them, build a relationship. They will tell somebody else, hey, I was meeting this guy, top shelf, here's what they're doing. And little by little, it started to catch, catch a little bit of a flame, a little bit of momentum, you know, and then you just keep pushing and it works. Yeah, it's that that brick by brick model. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone is so impatient. And I think 
that brick by brick model and being patient works. And I often talk about, it's like, do the things that don't scale because the things that don't scale are the things that are really going to help drive and help you grow. So what, what would you, what would you say was that moment where you kind of saw what was happening and, and looked, looked at what was going on. You're like, all right, this is working. Was there a moment in time or was there a series of events that led you to think this is something I could do, you know, full time? Well, back to the relationship thing that I put first, I got invited in 2016, which was about a year and a half or so after I started the NFL draft was taking place in Chicago. And I got a phone call from one of the distributors and Panini saying, Hey, would you like to come down and do breaks at the NFL draft? And I thought to myself, I'm really not quite sure what that means. What do you mean by that? No, you're going to sit in the room with us and Panini and the players are going to cycle through the rookies and they're going to sit down with you and you're going to interview them and open up cards. <laughs> I'm thinking, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> so I'm panicking. I have like this laptop that has about four megs of memory on it. And, you know, it just was crazy. But that moment I thought, okay, there's something here because they trust me enough and they, I have built my name enough to this point to be able to go down there and do that. So that was a big moment for me thinking, I have something here. My branding's working. My relationship building is working. They trust me enough to go down there and do it. And we went down there and there was two other breakers and we just did breaks with the, uh, with the players. And I'll never forget. It was a huge day and a huge moment. From there then, the credibility has been established. So that's when Brett, I started to notice more people buying into the breaks, coming into the room, and I started increasing my availability of products because mm-hmm. you, have, you have to spend money to get the products. So the problem starting out is, okay, I got to have products to sell, right? To offer people, you can't just put up a triple threads box. You want to have variety, but to have variety and a bunch of different things, you got to go out and spend a lot of money, which I didn't really have, but I found it. And I started putting more stuff on the website and then it started to catch on. And certain customers would come in and help out and buy a bunch of spots to close stuff out. Very thankful for those people. I call them over the humpers, which sounds silly, (laughs) but they got me over that hump. You know what I mean? And then you start filling your breaks and you just keep pushing from there. So do you, so back to the NFL, um, Mm -hmm. before I want to jump into something that you just said, but did you, did you sit down during that time with anybody in the NFL today of note that people would know about? Yeah, I have it right here. I'll tell you. It's my favorite piece. Let me, let me grab it right here. He's going and running off and grabbing it in his store so, of fun. You know, I'm all about branding and marketing. So I had these things made and I'll put it on Twitter for everyone to see. But here's some guys that came through and sat with me. I wrote them on the back because they all signed this. Jacoby Brissett. Nice. Uh, uh, Andrew Billings, Paul Perkins, Shalik Calhoun, who was a Raider, and and these two dudes, Sterling Shepard, Michael Thomas. There we go. That with me. So the story with Michael is, and my friend LJ was with me. I I asked him to come in and help me because I was nervous as hell. But Michael Thomas sat down with us and he says, hey man, how you doing? He goes, what's this really expensive stuff? It's like $600 a box. I said, oh, that's National Treasures, man. He goes, let's open that. And I was like, uh, well, you know, we, we sell spots, you know, that covers the cost of the box. He goes, come on, man, let's open one. Well, I'm live with Michael Thomas. So we ended up, I just bit the bullet, grabbed the box and opened it with Michael Thomas on there. And we were looking for his cards. It wasn't the best box, but he could see what the cards look like. So I ate that. And then the guy that was with me purchased on air just to show what they look like. He purchased two boxes and got the Tom Brady and was it Tom Brady and Peyton Manning one of one. It was a redemption. Oh my gosh. But I was like, why couldn't I have pulled that with Michael Thomas? You know? 
Well, that group of players, that group of players that you just described. So big Colts fans. So Jacoby Brissett was my quarterback last year and we got pummeled by the saints and Michael Thomas caught about a hundred passes. I don't (laughs) think I've ever seen that guy drop a ball. I Mm -hmm. think he's the best receiver in the NFL. Here's a little, here's a little anecdote for you and everybody listening. So there was at the draft and they still do it to this day. There's the red carpet guys, right? Those are the guys that are going to be on the red carpet. They're front and center. They're, you know, being highlighted and showcased with all those fancy videos. Well, the other second tier of rookies don't get invited to that. So what they're doing is they're spending their time with Panini signing footballs and taking those pictures and all that stuff. Michael Thomas was one of those players that from, I think it's uh, UCLA he went to, or where did he go? Michael Thomas. Um, But he wasn't, you know, a top tier rookie. He didn't get invited to go do all the fancy stuff. So just goes, just goes to show, you know, Sterling Shepard also. Sterling Shepard wasn't, you know, a red carpet guy out there in his suit walking the red carpet. And he was hanging out with us in the room, just making the rounds. So you never know in the NFL or any sport for that matter, who's going to become really good and talented. Yeah, no doubt about that. So that's, that's this period of time before football starts where every team is super hopeful because they've got a bunch of guys on their team who've never played, but everyone could wish that they've got a bunch of Michael Thomas's on their team. Um, But back to your break. So I think the one thing that I noticed that it's definitely when you participate, it's a um, experience. It's fun. There's a lot of interactions, but one thing you do that I, uh, there's two things that I like about your breaks and I'm just interested in how you go about doing those things because I don't see them a lot. But for me as someone who I'm not getting in breaks every day, but I do, I do it for the entertainment. I set the expectation that I'm probably not going to get anything which mm-hmm. obviously I hope I don't, but I'm, I'm doing it like on a Saturday night to be entertained. But the two things that attracted me to your breaks are one, you've got the buy one, get one free. So you've got two different tiers, which as so, it, it, for me as someone who's investing in some money and participating, that's helpful. Um, and then I think the other thing too, is just the schedule. So you know, like you're not waiting around and you know, when these breaks are actually taking place. So you, so me as someone who's looking for entertainment can plan on that and not waste a bunch of time. How how are you able to do those things and why aren't more people doing those things? Yeah. Well, first off I had to get help. Okay. You're going to reach a point as a breaker where you can't do it all yourself. So I got my two guys, Tyson and Carter, and they're at their houses uh, in the back end of WooCommerce, keeping track of what's filling and when and creating that sheet that's real time. So we have a sheet that's real time that you click the link. It shows what's breaking and when, what's next, what's the order, how many are left in it. And it's been a huge game changer for break night, like you said, because then you don't have to wonder and say, well, when is this breaking? Is it going to be at 10 p.m. or is it going to be at you know 9 tomorrow? So it's just put on a Google spreadsheet, Google Docs, and it's able to be shared uh, in the room so people can see when stuff is breaking. And then, and then, um, what about just the buy one, get one, how you, how you have that structured? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tiered, the tiered. So we were thinking years ago, like the guys that helped me, we're always constantly exchanging ideas and thoughts and trying to be creative and, and change it up a little bit. And we were trying to think like, if you do a random break, 30 teams and you get two teams. And if you just random those 30, you could end up with two non hobby preferred teams. Like, I don't like to call them better or whatever, but there's some that are hobby preferred and some that are not. 
Okay. We've all felt we've all felt that I've been a part of NBA breaks where you know you're crossing your fingers for the Pelicans, right, or the Grizzlies, and you end up with the Suns and uh, you know you Magic. the Rockets, which the Rockets are a terrible one this year if you're looking for rookies. So yeah, yeah. So we wanted to find a way to to literally better those odds. Now the price point goes up a little bit if you're selling more teams, but it stays the same if you're still selling two teams. So let's break that down into the top 15 and the second tiered of 15. So now you're guaranteed a 1 in 15 chance at the Pelicans or 1 in 15 chance at the Grizzlies plus your other team. The beauty of it is, is it also sales-wise makes people want to get that extra spot because now they're uh, now they could get the Pelicans and the Grizzlies. And it just happened last night. We oh, had a wow. customer in the BOGO tier. He got the Pelicans and the Grizzlies in my NBA mixer that we did with Mosaic and Prism and stuff. Did any so, Jar or Zion hit? Uh, we did. We had a uh, Zion Silver actually pulled out of Prism last night. Wow, cool. Yep. Had a Prism hobby. So I'm sorry, it was out of the Mosaic. The silver out of the new out of the new Mosaic. So that's what, the, and you can do it with triple team also. So we break it down even farther, Brett, to three teams of ten. So now you're guaranteed a top ten team. And the beauty of these is if you take it multiple years. Let's say you do 17, 18, 19 football or 18, 19, 20 football. That top 10 list is going to be straight monstery rookie teams because mm-hmm. you're going to be able to put in, you know, 2018 um, Ravens in that top 10 and you're going to be able to put in 2017 Chiefs. I mean, Chiefs are pretty much always top 10, but it just gives you better odds. You're just getting sure. a better shot at the good teams. No, totally. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I know as, Participant, a participant, that's something certainly I appreciate. And I think just someone that's newer getting back into the hobby, you're you're seeing a lot of new people, I'm sure, entering your, your breaks. What what would if what would you have to say right now? I know the market's just nuts and there's so many new people coming in. What are those reasons that you think that the the market has exploded here over the last uh, six months to a year? Well, there's the short-term explosion, of course, uh, over the past eight weeks for, for obvious reasons and everybody's home. But prior to that, prior to the lockdowns, um, it was firing on all cylinders. I think one of the biggest factors, you mentioned it earlier to me, um, I, Aaron Judge uh, a couple years ago really started changing up demand and excitement. Um, I think it's becoming more mainstream. I mean, I just in the past few days posted videos of news specials where they're covering the hobby. And I think social media has a lot to do with it. And I think that the players nowadays, meaning the past few years, Brett, I feel as though they're more engaging with the fans. I feel they're more engaging with um, collectors and they're doing a lot more cool stuff that makes them seem cool. Like you want to collect cool players, those guys that are on social media making little, you know, TikTok videos and all that. So social media has just completely driven it. And it's kind of the... um, the show off factor. If you want, if you pull that big monster card, Brett, the first thing they're doing is putting it on their Facebook, putting it on their Twitter, putting it on their Instagram, and they like to show it off and they like to get a lot of likes and share it. And there's a lot of eyes. The biggest part is there's just a lot of eyes that from whatever avenues have focused on the hobby, which is driving prices. Totally. No, more people. That's it. It's just demand. The social media component's a huge one. And just mm-hmm. to put put it into perspective, I was, this morning, I was um, posting out um, just a bunch of content that I was, uh, that had been dropping. And I'm 
like trying to scatter before I start working and my my real professional job and my wife is downstairs and she's yelling brett come down here brett come down here i'm like oh no what did i do and then she starts saying sports cards sports cards and i was like okay that's enough for me to run downstairs i run downstairs and the um the on the today show the today show right the number one morning show they are covering the sale of the Mike Trout rookie card autograph that sold for, you know, over a, a, almost a half a million or over a half yeah. a million dollars. So that if, you know, sports cards are being talked about on the mainstream, like the Today Show, that goes to show everyone where this hobby is headed. That's correct. And you know the news, how they work. What happens is it starts out in a small market. Uh, somebody covering, you know, looking for a story and they come across these group breaks or the hobby shops are closed. What are people doing? It starts to cycle through because news agents and producers are looking for stories. So this is just, just the beginning of every regional market. Every local news station is now going to be covering this. And then that translates into national and then ultimately ends up on TMZ with, you know, some of these celebrities running around with all their fancy BGS black label gold cards, you know, <laughs> that's where it's going. So, so I think it's a good time. I, it is. And I think that like, what excites me about where the hobby is going is just that growth element mm-hmm. and just the markets moving so quickly and transactions are happening. I, I, the, one of the big first things I did was buy when, the last dance got moved up. I bought a Pippin rookie PSA nine and then sold it 21 days later and made, you know, a 300% profit off of it. And just thought to myself, wow, this is nuts. So I think just from the individual collector or slash investor perspective, it's super exciting. But then, you know, I think with growth comes certain pains and things that aren't so glamorous. So you and your position as, you know, and an LCS owner and someone who breaks, are you trying to be cautious or do you feel like you have to be cautious of certain things that are happening within the hobby from the growth? Or um, do you have any other perspectives on how you're, you're making sure that you protect that brand identity that you have and you're making sure you don't kind of interact with the wrong people in the hobby that come with growth? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I contemplate this a lot of times. And I think this Stacking Slabs uh, podcast is a good forum to say this because I've never really said it anywhere else. But there are those out there that get frustrated and angry and say, this is supposed to be a hobby. This is supposed to be for collectors. Well, they're, they're kind of like a purist or something. Maybe they don't have anything else to say. But what I'm saying is this, I am running a business. Okay, just like the pizza shop you go to every day is running a business. So when you walk into that business, a pizza shop, that person obviously loves to make pizzas and that's their passion in life. They've probably been making them since they were 15 years old and now they have a pizza shop. Do you go into that pizza shop and say, hey, can I have some free pizza or I don't like the price of your pizza? (laughs) Like, no, I'm running a business. Every card that you have came from a business. I don't care if you traded it because you're in this hobby room and you're all true collectors, as they say, that card came from a business. It came from Tops. It came from Panini, which is a business. So right now, this is a business. However, we're collecting inside of a business. And for someone to get a card, Brett, which is completely fine, and buy it 90 days ago for 
$150. And if you want to sell it today for $250, there is nothing wrong with that. No. That is what you want to do. That is what is supposed to happen. That is a good thing. So I get a little frustrated sometimes when people say, uh, there's some of these people are just all about the money and they're all about making money and flipping cards. Do you ever stop to think that they're running a business and they're having fun doing it instead of digging ditches in the hot sun? Totally. So, no, no, that that's really good. And I love that. And I've I have been an observer and I follow and am involved with a lot of groups, forums, and that there is that that segment and sentiment from people that are these longtime collectors who don't like the word investor or don't like the fact that people are making money, um, which to me is a limiting perspective because I believe that more people that are entering the hobby and those people that are educated about what's happening in the hobby are more inclined to stay, which in turn causes your cards to increase in value. So in stacking slabs, how I feel, I feel like it is my job as someone who is going through it on a day-to-day basis is to educate because I want the people who are listening to not just transact and leave, but who make a sale, build relationships, are buying breaks or selling hobby boxes, you know, are in the games. I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's, you know, the more people that are in the hobby and educated, the more inclined they're, they will, the more inclined they will be to stay, which in turn adds value and increases the the value of those cards of those people with that limiting view. So I think everyone just needs to be open, open to new types of people entering the hobby. And at the end of the day, we're all just, we're here because it's fun. And when yeah. it starts not being fun, maybe it's not the best hobby for you. What do you think? Well, I do. I I agree. It's probably not the hobby for you if it's making you angry and ticked off. And I I get a little frustrated sometimes hearing people uh, on social media that are complaining about it and prices. Let me explain something to you in the nicest way that I can. This is a free commerce uh, society that we live in and country. So what that means is if there's a lot of demand for something, the price is going to go up. And it is not, I repeat, it is not Tops and it is not Panini and the other manufacturers that are putting the prices on these things that you see around the internet on the big websites. The way that that happens is they are keeping production at a reasonable level and putting it into the marketplace. It is being consumed so quickly from breakers, consumers, all around that when I run out of product, I have to go rebuy that product. And when Mm -hmm. I go to rebuy it, I'm buying it from another dealer. That dealer has the product that I need. So they're going to increase the price because they need to in turn make money because maybe they bought it from somebody. And the point here is if you see a box that's $600 and that's too much money, then don't buy it. But somebody's buying it for $600 and they're buying it and it probably sells out instantly. So as a business owner, if you're selling out of your product at $600 instantly, you're probably going to put it up to $650. That is supply and demand. And that's what's happening right now. Totally. And I think it's like, you know, we're, I know there's a lot of dynamics, but you know, with the latest release of Mosaic, there's been a lot of yeah. you know, negative sentiment back and forth with all of that. Do you have any perspective on just like over the last, you know, week or so the news on, since it's happening right now, I just, I personally, I haven't been out that much, but I went to Walmart at nine o'clock last night. Cause I got itchy and I was like, God, I hope they have mosaic and turn the corner. And they had, you know, the boxes. And of course they had been rummaged through. So the demand couldn't be any greater, but would yep. you have any thoughts on just the mosaic release and what's going on? Yeah. The mosaic release is uh, kind of prism part two. It's a lot of cards. You're getting a lot of cards. I didn't do the numbers. I don't know if there's more cards in mosaic than there is a prism 
uh, box, but it seems like there is. What I think is happening is, again, it's the demand right now that just is greater, a lot greater than the supply. So what it comes down to is people that have the money to spend six, $700. My phone was literally ringing off the hook yesterday that it wore down the battery. I think I unplugged it. People calling, asking if I have Mosaic. I probably could have sold it to them for $800 and they gladly <laughs> would have purchased it. I did not do that because like I said, Panini and Tops are not price gouging and raising the price to $600. That's not their price. We buy direct and we buy from manufacturers. We then adjust to what the market is willing to pay for these products. So I have to be sensitive to that to maximize profits for my business, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I also have to be in compliance with what the rest of the market is doing. I am not the guy who's going to undercut people just to sell the product. I'm going to be in line with everyone else. So that has come a long way because pricing, Brett, used to be all over the place. It was some guys were 600 a box. These other guys were like, well, I'll sell mine for 450. I don't care. It doesn't happen as much. Everyone's pretty consistent so that we try to stay uh, the same price points across the board and we all adjust accordingly. You know, totally. I have a couple of groups I'm in and we talk about pricing and PYT, what we're going to do. And if you sell out of your product right away, man, and you have to rebuy it, it costs you more. So the price goes up. That's all that's happening here. This is not us going, Ooh, I know what, let's see if we can fleece everybody and let's increase our prices really high. It's like we're running a business and we have to maximize profits and make sure that if we have to do a rebuy on product that it's worth our time. I do reach a point to answer your question where I think it's too mm -hmm. much. There's some products out there right now that I'm a pass to buy at this point um, because it just becomes, I think, a little bit too much for what you're getting in the product. I stopped buying the select hobby uh, hybrid because I think that for what you get in that hybrid select basketball is just not enough to warrant $500 or whatever the box price is, you know? Yeah. So I, I, think, I stopped buying it. Yeah. I think that's that whole mentality is super helpful for everyone to hear. And I think I talk about this all the time from just the individual um, collector perspective is that, you know, if, if you, if you're having fun with this and you're buying into breaks or you're buying cards, you really got it. There's an opportunity, right? Where you're investing in certain players, treat it like a portfolio, treat it like it's your own business. Cause you're trying to make money off of these cards so you can sell them and either do, apply those earnings to go on a trip or go on vacation or put those monies back into bigger or better cards to make your collection grow. And it's the same thing what people I think forget about. It's the same thing for people who have stores and people who are doing breaks. It's your it's your business. You're trying to run it like a business. You're trying to maximize your earnings. And I think that's an important thing for new people that are entering the hobby that I've observed. Pricing is pretty consistent from, you know, online store to breaks, breaker yeah. and from on eBay, the, there's there's a market that is set in those prices, and it there may be you know a few dollars up or down, but it's right. pretty consistent. It is, and I'm very sensitive and understanding to the fact that there may be those that do not have six hundred dollars to buy mosaic boxes. Okay, I understand that, and it sucks, but you can't be angry at that. You know what I mean? Like I'm sensitive to that person, and there are entry level products, but there's, there's the market is the market. And unfortunately it's driving the prices up of these hobby boxes. Even the entry level stuff starts creeping up to 130 to $150 for a, a hobby box versus 60 bucks when I started. So I can see why there's some people who are angry, Brett, because they can't, can't, they can't financially get in. 
as much. And that's where breaks come in because we can limit that and make it a $20 spot for 30 teams in a $500 box and have some fun. Totally. And, and I, yeah, I'm, I look back about two months ago and I wish I would have bought the, the, the case when the hoops boxes were going for $125 a pop. And now those things just have exploded. So, Oh yeah. The, the thing is, is I, you just gotta, as a student, you gotta be a student, you gotta keep your finger on the pulse and you gotta have those instincts on when to buy, when to sell and that sort those sort of thing. Okay. So I know we've been chopping it up. I think I could talk <laughs> forever and this has been yeah. super fun, but maybe to close it out, just for you and your position with your stores and your breaks and just the industry in general, what, what excites you the most about what's happening right now? Just, I mean, it comes back to what we just talked about. What's exciting right now is the demand and the excitement and the anticipation of sports returning um, to, you know, get excited about watching sports again and um, being able to see these guys in action. And hopefully that will continue to increase the excitement and the demand for collecting. The store is kind of sad right now. I don't have, I'm not able to do the promotions I want to do. I'm not able to do the events I want to do. You know, we're doing curbside pickup, um, you know, private things or guys come by. But I'm just, uh, overall, it's about purchasing product and then selling it if you're running a business. And for me, I'm able to purchase product and I'm able to then sell it. And for me, that's a good day. And for all of us, it's a good day. I'm not a sharp, meaning I don't know the price of every card. You know, that's, I don't have the time to put in Brett to like looking up all these PSAs. I'm not stacking slabs over here because that's just, that's not where my time is going. My time is going, holy crap, just put up some breaks. They sold out or this product's coming. Now this date was changed. You know, that's kind of what my time is spent doing. Yeah, that's good perspective. And I got to just... Let's. We're all fans, and I got to touch on this and the question just because I haven't asked. But um, assuming since you're in the Chicagoland area, you're a Bears fan. Is that accurate? That is very accurate. It's very difficult to not root for the Bears when you've lived here 14 years. And uh, but I'm a Niners fan from childhood. First from from childhood. I'm curious what's your what's your perspective on the Bears quarterback um, situation going into next season? Who's going to get the starting job? I think I might be the only person who's not a Bears fan, but looking from looking as an outsider, and I am not sure that the Bears organization has set up the guy they gave a lot of investment towards, Mitch Trubisky. I don't think they've set him up in the best situation, but that's just my perspective. I'm curious to hear what you've, you're, you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine during football season, it's the, around here in Chicago, there's a lot of talk about Mitch. You know, my neighbors, my buddies that come over and watch football, oh, they get so angry. They get ticked off, fire him, bench him, this, that. I said, look, man, this is the NFL. You are so excited, so high on Mitch Trubisky, and he's not doing too well, and you want to, like, kick him off the team. You can't do that. Now, this year, okay, these are off the pot, guys. You got to get off the pot and make something happen. Mitch is mm-hmm. in that crew. There has been, and you got to remember, you and I, and most of us fans, we're not head coaches that get paid millions of dollars. We're not guys that, you know, know really how football works in the trenches. But from watching as a fan, like you said, you do, it doesn't look like they gave him the best opportunity with play calling, who's around him and the things that they're making him do to put him in a position to succeed. So now with some new coaching changes and some new players added in, I think that he has to do well the first few weeks or they will do the old take a seat, Mitch, in comes yeah. Nick. That's probably what I see happening. But he will be the starter week one. I'm pretty sure of it. And 
They're going to see if this new scheme works, this new coaching, new offensive coordinator, new quarterbacks coach, and we'll see if we can get Mitch going. Yeah, I think just as an outsider, I'm just not sure. He's been set up with the right system, and I'm not a Mitch Trubisky apologist. I have no reason to, but I do. I think there's only a few types of quarterbacks named Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Pat Mahomes that are currently (laughs) playing that could go walk into any system and thrive. And I think you really have to adapt the system to the quarterback's needs. And I'm not sure that Mitch has got a fair shake, but you know what? It it's on, it is, it's let's see, no yeah. upper shut up this season. So we'll see what happens. Then that's the, uh, you know, if he, I want to see more play action, could stretch the field a little bit instead of these little dink and runs and, and handoffs up the middle. But then again, you know, I watched Mitch at the, uh, I don't know, there was some sort of combine thing they did at the Pro Bowl or whatever it was. And the dude couldn't throw the ball over the little 12 foot thing. He had to try it like 16 times. So maybe, just saying, maybe there was a reason they weren't running those plays because yeah. he, can't, he can't play action, throw it down 40, 50 yards like Patrick can or Drew can. So maybe that's not his thing. So if yeah. it's not, they're going to find out for now. There's no more excuses. And then we'll know after week four or five or so. Totally. All right. Where can, yeah. where can people find uh, you online and learn more about your breaks? Yeah. The website is topshelfbreaks.com. And I'm on the Twitter machine at, at Top Shelf Breaks. And then the store, the shop has its uh, Twitter at Top Shelf Cards 22. Same thing for Instagram at Top Shelf Breaks. Awesome. Chris, this was so much fun. I think I could talk to you about cards, marketing, <laughs> wrestling, uh, music, music. <laughs> you, you name it. We could tell you're going to, this will be the first of a series. You'll have to come back on real soon, but appreciate your time. I love it. Thanks for having me. And I see what you're doing, man. And, and I, I have no problem at all. Um, taking the time to talk to you because I see what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing and just keep doing what you're doing, my brother. Awesome, man. Thank you, everyone. Check out Chris and Top Shelf. We'll talk to you real soon. Thanks, Brett. All right, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation with Chris Keller from Top Shelf Sports Cards and Top Shelf Breaks. I know I did. That's one of the really good dudes in this hobby, and there's a lot of good guys and gals out there. I really encourage you, reach out to people, meet them, have conversations. It's amazing how many people are willing to help. I've learned a ton from people like Chris, and you can learn a ton too. Just make an effort. Go ask. It'll make all of us better collectors and investors. Everyone be safe out there. Definitely hit the subscribe button. Leave that five-star review. Be safe. Happy collecting. Happy investing.